Hey guys, I'm Amadale Yuckber, and this is See Something, Say Something with another mini episode. Um, we've been talking to as many people about Donald Trump's immigration order over the past few days. Um, on Tuesday, I wanted to dig into how people are pushing back, so we talked to some lawyers about protesting and organizing and the scene at the multiple airports across the country. Um, this episode, we're going to get more into the nuts and bolts of litigation and challenging uh, the Muslim ban in court. And we're going to talk to a professor and lawyer who was instrumental in pushing back in the courts against Donald Trump's Muslim ban. If you see something, you better, you better say something. Nothing at all, nothing at all. I brought on Munir Ahmed, a clinical law professor at Yale Law School, who teaches at the Worker and Immigrant Rights Advocacy Clinic, which helped file the initial lawsuit against Trump's executive order and was successful in getting the stay, um, which we'll talk about more of the details of that because I don't fully understand that as somebody who's not a lawyer. So Munir, thanks for joining us and helping make sense of this thing. Yeah, it's great to be with you. You're in New Haven right now, right? Yep. Cool. Um, so tell us about the lawsuit. Um, what's happened so far? Obviously, things change quickly, and you know it's been moment to moment. But at the moment of this recording, can you give us a, like sort of a timeline of what you've done so far and what you're looking to do? Sure. Well, you're right. Things have moved uh, very fast, and they continue to change. Um, uh, and there's a lot to keep track of because we're not just looking at uh, what's going on at one place or one airport. It's sure. really all across the country and um, and really all across the world. Um, so let me maybe walk um, you through what happened starting on Friday night and the way the litigation unfolded, uh, and then I can kind of come to where we are now. So hearing you say that, I just want to say one thing, which is like, were you prepared for this? You guys responded so quickly. It was It's kind of amazing. Or was it like totally on the fly, you know? You know, it was somewhere in between. Um, the... Uh, I think there were a lot of people who uh, didn't just take Trump um, seriously, but took him literally uh, during the campaign when he said he wanted to impose a Muslim ban. So people have been giving some thought to what legal challenges might look like before it happened. Uh, and then a couple of days before the executive order was issued, um, there were some rumors that it was going to be issued and there was a draft that was floating around. So people had some idea of what it might look like. Okay. Um, but you know, it's a different uh, situation when it actually comes down and even more different when it starts to affect people. So, um, you know, one of the things here is this was the third immigration-related executive order to be issued last week. Mm. But the reason that this one has gotten so much attention has become the source of um, so much opposition is it's the first one where implementation has been visible and the human suffering caused by it has been appreciable. Um, so when it came, you know, it came down sometime after four o'clock in the afternoon on Friday, and we got a phone call from the International Refugee Assistance Project uh, a little bit after ten o'clock that night, saying that one of their clients, um, an Iraqi uh, translator, um, oh, yes. uh, an engineer who had been given a special immigrant visa to come to the United States with his family because he had spent. Um, uh, about a decade providing service to the U.S. military and the U.S. government and contractors in Iraq, 
Um, his, he had arrived at JFK. His um, wife and child had been allowed through, and he was being held back. And that was wow. the first time that we um, came to understand that this executive order had gone into effect and was starting to have its desired effect of uh, tearing apart families and, um, and uh, keeping Muslims out. Um, so for you as a lawyer, what was your response? What did you, like you, I've heard about this case. Um, what, what, what was the next step for you uh, after Friday night? Well, I look back at it now and it started off, um, uh, it started off so simply. It was a message from uh, my colleague, Mike Wishney, saying, uh, anybody want to help with a habeas petition? And a habeas petition is uh, something you file in court when somebody is being um, held against their will by the government, and it's a way to challenge the legality of detention. It's an old writ. Uh, it goes back to you know at least Magna Carta, if not before, and it's used a lot for um, prisoner litigation. It was used in the Guantanamo litigation, um, <clears throat> and we use it a lot in immigration detention litigation. So it sounded um, kind of simple. <clears throat> there was one person who was being held. We would file it and, um, and see how it went. Once we actually got into it, so that started around 10 o'clock at night uh, um, on Friday. Um, by 11 or so, we had a uh, conference call with a group of our students, uh, colleagues here at Yale Law School, mm-hmm. Uh, our partners at IRAP, the International Refugee Assistance Project, the National Immigration Law Center, the ACLU. And by about midnight, we had a game plan. And the game plan was we were going to file a petition for habeas corpus. We were going to file a complaint asking a federal judge to declare the executive order uh, unlawful. And we also were going to move to have the court certify this as a class action so that this would benefit not just Mr. Darwish, who was the client we learned about, but everyone else at every port of entry at, uh, uh, across the country who was in a similar position. Um, and so our students and our colleagues um, literally worked through the night, and we filed in federal court at 5.33 a.m. Wow. Um, and that's how it all began. Um, so just to be cl- like super clear, he's being held because there's a 90-day uh, ban on visas from those seven countries, right? That's the exact part of the order he's being held under? He was being held under? Yeah, so there are the several different parts of the order, and the part that he was being held on is exactly as you say, um, a 90-day moratorium on um, entry into the country of people from one of these seven designated countries, uh, including Iraq. He was Iraqi, and that was the basis, the sole basis on which they were detaining him and preventing him from entering the country. So on what argument are you, were you arguing for him to be released? Um, you know, the complaint that we filed raises a series of constitutional challenges, um, uh, due process challenges, that he wasn't given an opportunity to challenge this, um, challenges that this was discriminatory, that it was mm. based on racial animus toward Muslims, mm. um, challenges that were more procedural in nature, that um, the there are statutory and uh, regulatory rules for how the government is supposed to act. And if they deviate from those actions, they have to explain it first uh, before they do so, and they hadn't done that here. So it was a series of challenges that we um, uh, that we raised in the complaint. Um, I should say, you know, filing a lawsuit at 5.30 in the morning on a Saturday <laughs> doesn't really uh, do much to get the court's attention. There are not a lot of people there. And, um, sure. So, um, or anywhere, really. <laughs> or anywhere, yeah. <laughs> So, um, you know, what we realized is that what what we uh, most had to do was to get in front of a judge. And so um, 
our team, uh, rather than going back to bed, they got to work on a motion um, that sought to uh, prevent the government from deporting anyone who was a member of this class of people that uh, we brought the lawsuit on behalf of. So we finished that uh, 25 or 30-page motion mid-afternoon on Saturday, uh, got that filed, and we called up the clerk and we said, hey, we filed this emergency motion. We really need to see a judge. And the court said, uh, talk to the government, uh, oh, wow. tell us when they're available, and, um, and the judge is here. And so by 7.30- And you're, you're, in, you're in Connecticut and they're in New York, or did you come over to New York for this? So um, our partners at the ACLU are in New York. So okay. what we did is we uh, were doing a lot of the, uh, the work on the papers here um, in New Haven and coordinating with our colleagues at NILC and the ACLU. Meanwhile, IRAP, um, the Iraqi uh, the, uh, uh, International Refugee Assistance Project, they had um, both their staff and volunteer lawyers on the ground at airports around the clock um, and around the country. So they were um, you know, most responsible for getting um, the best and highest quality information about what was going on on the ground, which we could then put into papers and put in front of, uh, of a judge. And um, so by 7.30 on Saturday night, remarkably, we ended up in front of a federal judge and uh, legal learned who's a great lawyer with the ACLU. Uh, he was there to argue the case. At the end of that hearing, you were granted a, a stay. Is, is that correct? Or, yep. Or soon it went, after? It went very quickly. Um, I wasn't there, so I only have the reports from my colleagues and the, and the transcript thereafter. But um, the government didn't put up much of a fight. I mean, they... Huh. They were asked um, to explain the executive order, what its purpose was, what its scope was, what it was, uh, how it was operating, and essentially the government was incapable of answering that. Um, <laughs> in some ways, it wasn't the lawyers' faults because they're, you know, they were career lawyers uh, representing their client, um, the U.S. government, but they had no information about what was going on. Lots of chaos on. We're hearing that, like we talk, people border agents are having inconsistent, you know, ways of implementing. There seems like there's a lot of misinformation or people missing parts of the picture. I think that's exactly right. Um, um, you know, you the other thing that had happened. Uh, sorry, the other thing that had happened no you know, be, between the time that we filed our lawsuit at five thirty in the morning and the time we got before the judge at seven thirty at night was. Uh, as you know, there were massive protests. Yes, um, of course. Practically spontaneous at JFK and all over the country. And um, by the time we got to the courthouse, the courtroom was full and there were protesters on the street outside. Wow. Uh, it was. Um, and so, you know, I appreciate this a conversation about the litigation, but the litigation doesn't mean a whip uh, yeah, if there yeah. isn't mobilization and support um, uh, outside the courtroom as well. And both of those things were going gangbusters uh, on Friday and Saturday night. Um, so I wanted to ask you about um, the stay and what that means. But I think that's an interesting point as well. Uh, you think the public support uh, was a big factor as well? Or was it, was it a combination of that and the inability to argue in court? So I'd say it was three things. I think the mobilization mattered a huge amount. I think the government's inability to uh, articulate a basis, much less a rational basis for what it was doing, was really important. And I think the fact that when you just look at the plain text of the executive order, which was Exhibit A, literally, not you know, not figuratively, this was literally Exhibit A in our case, uh, the discrimination of it is plain on its face. Yeah. And I think that the judge saw that. 
She tried to ask the government for its best explanation. They didn't have much of one. And I think that you don't need to be a learned jurist to see what's wrong about uh, the policy and the tearing apart of families and just such blatant discrimination being written into law. So can you explain to me? So what was interesting to me, it was as somebody, you know, like hearing that there was a stay and I'm, I'm, I'm hearing like, oh, this means that this person is being allowed in, this translator. But I, the stay basically, ju- the judge said it extends beyond uh, just um, this one case. Can you explain how that is? Sure. So the stay that she issued was nationwide. So yeah. it extends to, to everyone who arrives at a port of entry and whom the government seeks to exclude on the basis of the executive order. That includes now, the immig- immigrants from those countries and refugees as well? Uh, it does. Okay. Um, it, it includes both. It includes both immigrants and refugees. Here's the, here's the catch, though. The stay that the judge issued, it prevents the government from excluding them um, or sending them back. It doesn't require the government to release them. And so- oh. Interesting. Yeah, it's so a big. It's a big are, O. But I thought I thought everybody was. Um, are there people who have been detained since Friday? I thought pretty much everyone. Am I most people have gotten out, and okay. um, and that's for you know a bunch of reasons. But I think the the fact that they weren't allowed to send them back um, then put the government in the position of well, what are we going to do with these people? And um, the fact that they released them, you know, is proof of the of the fact that. Um, this whole notion that this is a national security issue and this whole the whole policy of excluding people is to fulfill some critical national security goal um, is you know it's hard to square that with the fact that uh, when faced with a court order they just they just released everybody into the country. So um, and at the time of this recording, which is Tuesday afternoon, is that the stay is basically being enforced, or is there um, are there people still being deported as well uh, as well? We've heard so, reports of people being stopped from boarding their planes. So that's yeah, so seems- that's another issue is that okay. um, the order as uh, that w- that we've gotten applies to people – it applies to the, the government's conduct here um, in the United States. But okay. um, the government – what the government has been doing is telling airlines not to allow people onto planes coming from Europe or other destinations um, to come to the U.S. And so that's going to – we're going to have to do some additional work to try to reach um, that issue and to allow people who have visas and aren't yet at ports of entry um, to come back. Um, but the order that we have so far doesn't do that. So, you know, here's what I would say about that. Um, this was a massive victory over the weekend. Um, and the fact that a judge ordered this and the fact that a judge ordered it nationwide, those were um, those are huge. And it's just the beginning because mm-hmm. – um, it doesn't reach all of the problem, and no doubt this administration is going to continue to modify its behavior and create new problems. So um, we know we're in for for a big fight. Um, the other thing I would say, which I think is is really important about the legal work of the weekend, is that um, this one case then led to a proliferation of lawsuits filed across the country. And so, you know, today, you know, as of today, Tuesday, there are at least five court orders that have or may have some nationwide application um, that all restrict the government's ability to carry out this executive order. And there are 
dozens of individual cases that were filed um, on top of that, many of them using a template uh, habeas petition that once we got our case filed, our, our students turned around and cranked out some templates for advocates to use around the country. So, you know, we're kind of flooding the field with mm-hmm. legal challenges. And there's a lot more to do, but I think it was a pretty good start. So I'm going to ask, I'm going to ask one more question about um, the specifics of the arguments you're making right now. And then I want to sort of talk about um, the bigger picture of like the attorney general and checks and balances and the future of this fight. Um, the last question I have about this is we're talking a lot about you know the most obvious emergency around this, which is that people are being torn from their families. Um, they're being, uh, you know, torn from their lives and their their travel. And in the beginning was very unpredictable whether they would be able to, you know, you know, basically make good on their flights. So my question is, what about the other aspect of it, which has been present for many years, which is the harassment at the border, the extreme vetting, as the administration has called it? Has that been a part of the argument as well um, in any of your lawsuits? Or is that like sort of like a fight for, for when we finish this emergency situation? I think it's actually a fight for this uh, for this litigation, for this lawsuit. And um, this goes back to your previous question about what's going on right now. So um, the best information we have is that a lot of people are being allowed in, that the scope of the detentions that we were seeing on Friday and Saturday has uh, definitely reduced. Um, the thing is that we're hearing a lot of credible reports about Customs and Border Protection officials trying to coerce people into signing away their rights Mm -hmm. and uh, waiving their right of entry to the country. We have reports of green card holders being pressured to give up their green cards. And so the whole question of what's going on there, the kinds of tactics that are being used by um, Customs and Border Protection officials in a way that, you know, they would claim, oh, if someone, you know, someone wants to waive their rights, that's their, that's their choice is voluntary. But of course, you know, when you're being detained and um, someone is saying you better do this um, or else, um, it's hard to really call that voluntary. Yeah, we have you know we have some information about what's going on there, but um, Customs and Border Protection doesn't let lawyers back there. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't let lawyers come in when they are um, interviewing people. And you know, uh, I used to do Guantanamo. I used to do Guantanamo litigation, and one of my colleagues in that work said, "Bad things happen in dark places." Yeah, and um, and we're really worried about what's going on back there where you know, lawyers or human rights advocates or others don't have the ability to go in and, uh, and see what's going on. And why, how is that legal? Is it, I've heard it several times, but like it just seems so – like how could your rights – you don't have rights on the border? Like what's, how can you not have a right to a lawyer? Sorry, this is like so, my like just inc- incredulity at the situation, you know. Um, you know, you, the the fact that you're incredulous about it, like that that should be the that is and should be the normal reaction. Yeah. The fact that some of us kind of get, uh, uh, sent, you know, we we kind of just get used to it. That's the problem. Um, that it's based on an idea that um, countries, as an exercise of sovereignty, have an ultimate and unreviewable right to decide. Uh, whom to admit and whom to exclude. Um, and so in the U.S. context, that's referred to as the plenary power doctrine. Um, historically, the government has claimed that to be an absolute right. Um, and uh, sometimes the courts have upheld it as, a, as absolute. Sometimes they have said, well, it's pretty strong, but it's not absolute. Um, but that's essentially the, the foundation for the idea that what goes on at the border is the government's business and, and nobody else's. 
Um, you know, I'll add in one of the cases that was filed over the weekend in Virginia, uh, a federal judge ordered the government to allow uh, green card holders arriving at Dulles Airport access to their lawyers. And Customs and Border Protection is so intent on keeping lawyers out um, that rather than let lawyers in, they just let everybody go. And so that's pretty wow. telling. Wow. Yeah, here's this population of people who are being held uh, pursuant to this executive order, uh, purportedly on the grounds that they might be terrorists. And the government's more afraid of lawyers coming in than this alleged population of terrorists being released. Wow. That is, yeah, I don't even know how to react to that. <laughs> um, yeah, what? <laughs> um, but okay, so let's talk about that bigger bigger picture. There's a lot of moving parts in this transition. Like, for instance, um, we... There was an, the attorney general, the holdover from Obama's administration, um, uh, basically made an order to um, tell the Justice Department to not enforce the ban. And then she was removed. She was not only replaced by Dana Buente, who is now the attorney general, but Trump also said that Yates betrayed the administration. Like, it seems like, the yes, the courts obviously... Um, won, won a victory, but it seems like it's so looking forward. If this is what happens in the first week when they're not even fully established, like what are the what is the future of checks and balances in this country and in this fight specifically? As you see it, I mean, obviously it's speculation because I mean you can't tell. But I'm, yeah, I, I, I would be curious to hear your perspective on it. Well, you know, I guess the place I start is um, for everyone who thought. Trump's not going to be so bad. Um, you know, he's not going to do all the things he says he's going to do. Uh, you know, shame on us for believing any of that. And there's probably more to come. There's, you know, uh, talk about additional immigration-related executive orders being issued either today or tomorrow. And this is part of a systematic um, attack on immigrants generally, on um, refugees, uh, and on Muslims. So we are uh, we're in for it. You know, this is uh, this is not going to be just one executive order that's got to be beaten back. It's an entire ideology that is now animating, um, really hastily created and sloppily implemented policy. Um, so where do the courts fit in? Well, I don't know. I think that you know there's some lessons to be learned from the way the courts operate under uh, the George W. Bush administration with respect to Guantanamo, with respect to a range of other national security-related cases. And it's kind of a mixed bag, I think. Um, on some of the big questions, the Supreme Court did the right thing. For example, in uh, the Guantanamo litigation, it ruled that the detainees there had a right to go into federal court in the same way that we've gone in on habeas corpus as a matter of a statute. And when that statute was repealed, they said they had a right to go as a matter of the Constitution. But after that, the Supreme Court kind of tired of Guantanamo cases and um, a whole bunch of other legal claims just uh, uh, died. So there's some reason to believe that in times of um, gross presidential excess that the courts will step in. But the courts are, by their nature, a slow um, and deliberative institution. And the deliberative part is good. Um, the slow part is not. And that's why, you know, the the litigation, I think, is hugely important. I think lawyers have a really important role to play in a time like this. But um, we can't work in isolation. 
And so the folks who um, mobilize people to turn out at JFK and at airports all over the country, um, the folks who are mobilizing calls to Congress, um, the folks who turned out volunteers, uh, people were, you know, there were protesters and then there were the people supporting the protesters. Uh, I had a friend who was uh, delivering water to the protesters at LAX. Um, that's what he took on as his volunteer job is a whole infrastructure to do that. And um, I think that, you know, the, that's where the, the future lies um, for success is if we can get these pieces uh, to be working together and uh, in tandem and taking advantage of the the strengths that each has to offer, recognizing what their limitations are, and um, and figuring out how to make uh, synergies between them. So listening to you talk about like the future of these executive orders, I'm thinking about like other, you know, infamous uh, Supreme Court cases that have, you know, changed things. And, you know, my producer was talking about, like, she was thinking about um, Edie Windsor's case, which uh, turned over the Defense of Marriage Act. But, like, I feel like what I'm uh, what I'm hearing for you from you is, like, the difference is these executive orders seem like they are going to continue to come. And it doesn't – it's not clear, I guess, yet if, like, Congress is going to weigh in and do anything, um, like, larger. And it might be just responding to these things over time. Like, it seems like the pathway to stop this is not very clear. What What is your perspective on it? Like, where do you see the next four years going? I, I agree. I think the path is not clear. And um, – you know, it, it goes back a little bit to one of your earlier questions about uh, were we prepared for this executive order? And the answer, you know, was we were and we weren't. We didn't know when or exactly how it was going to come down and what it was going to look like when it did. And I think that's true of this administration generally. We have some pretty good ideas because they've telegraphed their punches about what they want to do. Um, but when it actually happens, you know, that's when you get a handle on uh, what it looks like, what it feels like, where the pressure points are, where the, the opportunities are. And so I think that part of our challenge is, you know, we've got to um, respond to things when they come down, and that's tactical. But we need to figure out a strategy, right? Yeah. We need to figure out not just how to, you know, block punches, but to um, go in the offensive and to use our work to articulate a positive um, and inclusive counter vision to this dark, dystopic, um, carnage in America story that's being peddled um, and the lies that are being used to um, to convince people of it. Um, and does Congress have a role in it at all? I mean, is it just like a battle between, you know, uh, like lawyers, judges and the president and, you know, the Justice Department? Yeah, I mean, I think Congress does have a role, and um, I think that this is going to be um, a moment of conscience for a handful of um, Republicans who are a little bit closer to the center, uh, particularly in the Senate. Um, this is it. This is, the, I think, their entire careers, their uh, legacies will be judged on what they do um, over the next couple of years. Yeah. And... Um, I think the rest of us need to figure out how to um, get the mix right of pressure and uh, support to get them to do the right thing. Because this is, uh, you know, if we have learned anything from the past eight or nine days of this administration, um, it's that um, 
reason is not going to carry the day here. There is a um, very strong, dark vision that they are hell-bent on carrying out. Um, and so this is not going to be about you know, getting in the room with the right people, uh, people in the administration and showing them the, um, the error of their ways. This is going to have to be, I think, about um, countervailing power and um, mobilizing people who are in a position to exercise that power so that um, uh, they stiffen their spines uh, for the country and, and for the world. I mean, one of the things that's been so extraordinary about even just the work over the weekend is people <laughs> writing to to our legal team from around the world mm-hmm. saying thank you yeah. um, because I think there's a huge swath of America that's terrified and there's an even bigger swath of the world that's terrified of the moment we're living in now. Yeah. Um, I want to also ask, how are you doing, Manir? <laughs> You're a person <laughs> underneath all this, you know, and I'm sure it's weighing on you. How are you How are you grappling with this as like an individual beyond like, you know, I'm sure it's very draining. Um, you know, it's been, it, there's no doubt it's been a very um, tiring, kind of exhausting uh, few days, but it's also been incredibly exhilarating where yeah. um, I feel like my spirits have been buoyed uh, and I've been so inspired by the work that um, my students have done, my colleagues at the law school, my colleagues at our partner organizations. And, um, you know, I, probably more than uh, even all of those things, I, I had to fly down to Florida uh, on Sunday, and I left the Hartford International Airport, which is not a big airport, and there are not uh, a lot of arriving refugees or immigrants from these seven designated countries coming there. There were a thousand people protesting Whoa. at the Hartford airport when I left. And I landed in West Palm Beach uh, to go visit my parents, uh, uh, who are snowbirds um, in Florida. Uh, I always describe uh, snowbirding in Florida as the last stage of immigrant integration. because I don't think I know, know that term. What does that mean? Well, snowbirds are uh, folks from the Northeast who uh, spend the the winter in Florida, Got it. Um, and so they kind of they migrate down uh, for the warm weather. And um, my family is from Pakistan, and growing up, my parents always said, "Oh, you know, one day, we're, one day we're going to go back. One day we're going to go back." But instead, uh, they went to Florida. <laughs> but you know, when you <laughs> when you decide to winter in Florida, that's the end of that dream. That means you're never going back. <laughs> but anyway, I I landed in. Um, West Palm Beach, Florida, which is a small airport, and there were 200 people there. And um, people were chanting things that I've never heard before, and I've been to a lot of rallies. Um, Muslim rights are human rights. We're all Muslim today. Uh, mm. Things that I I didn't think I would ever hear. And so that was pretty inspiring. Um, and um, I think the other thing that's been uh, really motivating is um, – uh, my partner and I, we have a three-year-old uh, son. He's going to be three on, on Friday. And um, congratulations! fighting for the world that he's going to grow up in, that's really important. And wanting him one day to understand that in this moment where we all were called upon to make choices, um, these were the choices that people in his life made. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a story I want to be able to tell him. So mm-hmm. that's been um, a source of uh, comfort and guidance uh, during these days as well. Thank you for that. That was very, very moving. <laughs> oh, I'm kidding. Um, do you are you worried about any of your family? I mean, I know the ban doesn't ex- extend to Pakistan at all yet, but are, do you have concerns about that yourself? 
Yeah, I mean, I think yet is the operative word um, because the executive order makes very clear they can add um, additional countries essentially just in their exercise of discretion. So, um, yeah, I, I, I mean, I am worried. I, the other thing is that even without adding anybody else, um, the the executive order is having one of its desired effects, which is um, just to create fear and mm-hmm. mistrust and to discipline people through that fear. So I think that, you know, Pakistanis are not part of the order, but Pakistanis are feeling scared. Um, citizens yeah. are not part of the order, but I know a lot of citizens um, yeah. who are South Asian or Arab or Iranian um, who are feeling very scared. And uh, they're not wrong to feel scared. I think that it's uh, it's like firing a bullet. It doesn't have to hit you for you to be scared. And I think that this is a really, it's a terrifying moment we're in. Um, so I, I am afraid. So I, I also, I, I'm not sure I trust my predictive abilities at this point. I've gotten so much wrong about what was going to happen in this past <laughs> yeah. year uh, that um, uh, that I don't have confidence in knowing what's coming around the bend. Yeah, of course. I just, you know, it's just like there's so, with such an unpredictable situation, you know, it f- like, I mean, like I, f- I obviously have many similar feelings to you and you just want to, you have to predict worst case scenarios because already this is a worst case scenario. And so mm-hmm. things can, you know, you know, you want to hope that things will get better, but you have to be prepared for the possibility that things could get much, much, much worse. Um, and so like, you know, I don't like, I, I, I want to be prepared for them as I'm sure you do, as I'm sure everyone does. Um, so, you know, I don't like, obviously you're a professional too and a lawyer and, you know, I don't want to put you on the spot and make a wrong prediction, but it's, 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 it's a real fear for many people. Yeah. Well, and, you know, I don't even mean just as like a, a prediction as a lawyer, I just mean a prediction as a person. Yeah. Like, yeah. What's going to, you know, I'm scared to look at my phone to see what the news update is. Uh, yeah. you know, what's going to happen today? What's going to happen tomorrow? And yeah, you mentioned the firing of Sally Yates. I mean, this is like, yeah. this is Nixon era stuff all over again. By the way, he not only fired the acting attorney general last night, he also fired the head of ICE. And, oh, um, I did not know that. Really? And installed somebody new. Yeah. I mean, there's so much that's going on so fast and things literally happening in the middle of the night. Um, ICE is the Immigration and Customs Enforcement. Exactly. Right, so yeah. ICE is responsible for interior immigration enforcement and Customs and Border Protection is responsible for enforcement at the border and the ports of entry. Thank you for joining us, Munir. That was so informative. I learned so much. Thanks. I appreciate it. By what? the way, I was promised a, a cup of chai and there is no chai here. <laughs> so, uh, well, I'm holding you're it against from you. Connecticut, so. I don't want to brag, but I mean, it. I make a, a, a killer chai. So, What's your recipe? You think I'm going to tell you that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Where can people follow the work you're doing um, on the internet? Um, So our clinic is called the Worker and Immigrant Rights Advocacy Clinic um, at Yale Law School. And so if they just search for Yale Law School Clinic, um, they'll uh, they'll find lots of information about our work. Um, I have a um, semi-active Twitter account, um, which is Munir underscore Ahmed, A-H-M-A-D. Uh, and I'd use it mostly to 
posted about the work of my students. Uh, they're doing amazing stuff, and uh, I like to brag about them. <laughs> yeah, I can tell. They were doing a lot of the work over this weekend. That was one thing I didn't even get to touch on is how much of this is being done by, um, I mean, obviously law students can be of any age, but young people, you know? Yep. They're doing a lot of the work, and that's pretty amazing. On, on Law students, protesters, you know, the people who are being affected themselves and their families. Yeah, it's a lot of young people. It sure is, Yeah. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. So as we talked about in Tuesday's episode, we are going to be releasing a bunch of mini episodes responding to the Muslim ban. Uh, Right now, it's looking like a trio of episodes. This is our second episode today. And then we're going to release another episode trying to get at some stories of people who are affected by the ban, have family members who have been affected by the ban, or just reacting to the climate of fear and just talking about what it feels like to be a Muslim experiencing all this and, you know, the history in which it's, it's placed for all of us. So definitely check back in tomorrow. We're going to have another mini episode for you. Um, They're all really great conversations. And as somebody who is struggling a lot during this week to deal with the news, they really, talking to everyone has really helped me process um, my feelings on what my next steps are. This episode is produced by Eleanor Kagan, Megan Dietry, and Meg Kramer. Additional production support from Thabir Akhtar, Julia Ferlin, Nina Patek, and Chiquita Pascal. Our music is by The Caminas. Find them at caminas.bandcamp.com. You can find me on Twitter at radbrowndads, and I have a Tumblr also called radbrowndads. You can find my writing at buzzfeed.com, the website. Email us at something at buzzfeed.com. Follow us on Twitter at See Something and on Facebook. And if you like the show, please rate it on iTunes. I'm Amadella Yuckber. Thanks for listening. <laughs>